Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. This is Season 5, Episode 43. My name is Rick. I'm author of the just-released Jesus Centered Daily. You can go to my website, JesusCenteredDaily.com, and get a free sampler of that daily devotional. Uh, You get a 10-day sampler if you just push a button there. And you can also watch a little intro video if you want. And you can also order it off that site, or you can just go directly to Amazon. The Jesus Center Daily is unusual in that it gives you a snippet of an upending way of looking at Jesus every day, along with a, a way to pray based on what you've just dived into and something Jesus said that can stick in your craw through the day. And then actually something to do that's tied to one of your five senses. So if you haven't experienced it yet, head on over to JesusCenterDaily.com. You get your free sampler and watch my intro video. And, and if, you, if you already have your copy, <clears throat> by the way, it is a great Christmas gift or a great even New Year's gift for someone you know who is wanting to establish a new, more intimate pattern of daily connecting with Jesus. So please do consider this as a really... Uh, one of those Christmas gifts that keeps on giving throughout the year. So love it if you would um, think about that as you're putting together your, your gift list for Christmas. So this is the first episode in a new series that I'm calling Kingdom Come. My, my parents are old school, and I, I, I used to hear when I was a kid growing up, um, I'm going to send you to Kingdom Come. So those words just strike fear in my heart. but that's not what the series is about. It's not about punishment. It's about the culture that Jesus came to bring into our broken world. So the, the question to consider here is, well, what did Jesus really come to do? What was his mission? We know if you've grown up in the church that we've heard over and over again, his mission is basically a rescue mission. But in truth, the rescue part of his mission is really just the epic fruit of, rela- of a relationship. So here's the way to think about that, I think. When we get married, we move from being single to being a married couple, right? You, the, your reality changes permanently when you go from being single to married. Your status changes. Even your status on Facebook changes. So when we commit ourselves to Jesus, we're essentially moving from a present and future reality that is apart from God, to a present and future reality that is with God through our relational attachment to Jesus. This is ultimately the passion of God, a restoration of relationship that leads to intimacy, that leads to he and me and I and him kind of relationship, the kind that Jesus prayed and asked for in John 17 in his last prayer before he headed to the cross at least his last public prayer, he wanted his disciples to hear his heart that at the center of everything is that he just wanted us to be with him and he wanted him to be with us. So the restoration of relationship is the passion of the Trinity, but the mission of God 
has to do with planting the culture of the Trinity in the broken and scarred garden that was once Eden. At one time, we walked with God in the cool of the evening, as the scripture says, in this beautiful garden named Eden. And then all that ended when the man and the woman betrayed God and, and uh, took of the apple because they were, had been convinced by the serpent that God was holding out on them and that he was holding back good things from them and even holding back responsibility and authority from them. So they, they, they bought that lie and they ate the, they ate the fruit of the tree and, and Eden uh, was forever hidden from them again. So the, the mission of God has to do with bringing back the culture that Adam and Eve once experienced with God, an intimate sort of relationship he had with them. And I would make the case that the kind of relationship that we can have with God today actually offers us even greater intimacy because we know what it's like to be apart. We know what it's like to have that relationship broken and restored. There's a deeper kind of redemptive intimacy that we can experience that even Adam and Eve didn't have or didn't have access to at the time. So the mission of God is very much focused on planting the culture, the kingdom of God on earth. Uh, this kingdom of God, we, we often refer to it, um, but it's one of those phrases that we often hear or say, and we don't really know what we're saying or hearing when, when, uh, when it's used. But the kingdom of God is really the Trinity's culture, a replanting of the same culture that Jesus exists in and the spirit and the father exist in right now, replanting it like seeds into our broken reality. So that's what this series is about, is exploring what does it mean to live out the kingdom of God in our own lives? How do we live like people who are natives of the kingdom of God? rather than natives of our own broken culture. So today we're going to explore an interesting way to get at this. Um, it's, I, I'm not really sure how to describe <laughs> even, even what to call this other than let's call it family traditions. So today we'll explore the family traditions of the kingdom of God. So, uh, when I think about the holidays, where we're right now kind of midstream, halfway through December, heading toward uh, Christmas, or almost halfway, we're, we're kind of jumping onto the mega water slide that is the holidays now. I, I always used to think about this as the, what, uh, when you get to the end of December, right into the new year, what does it feel like when you look back on that month? It, the best metaphor I have for it is... Uh, the time that I went on a, to a water park and went on one of the really steep, you know, sort of scary looking water slides where you, you shove yourself into the, the little tunnel at the start of the slide, and then you, you come vaulting out of that. And at first, you're picking up steam, but then on the water slide that I was on, it was so steep that I, you almost lost contact with the slide. It was, you had air between you. <laughs> And, and uh, it picks up momentum, and then there's nothing you can do about it. The momentum is going to propel you all the way down to splashdown. That's what the holidays feel like. It's really, I would say, from kind of Halloween on, but definitely from Thanksgiving on, 
that it feels like we're on this water slide headed to splashdown. And <clears throat> this is the time of year also that is thick with lots of other things to do. So the, the gift buying and the gift giving, the getting together uh, in the past, at least with people that are close to us and with family. Now we have to negotiate and figure out all that stuff and uh, figure out how to connect when we can't really face-to-face connect. But it's also thick with traditions. So many traditions. Some of them for sort of formal traditions, like maybe you have a formal tradition of whatever you eat on Christmas Eve. We do. Every Christmas Eve, we have soup and uh, crackers and fine cheese. And we make two or three homemade soups. So we have a choice. And we turn off all the lights in our house and we bring out all of our, we, we usually have, we usually eat by candlelight anyway in our family every night, but we pull out a bunch of candles and we light everything in the house <laughs> and we turn off all the lights in the whole house is just candlelit. And we linger over that meal. We enjoy each other. We tell funny stories um, and we just enjoy our soup and our crackers and our cheese and it's a wonderful night. We, our kids really look forward to it. Another, so that's sort of a formal tradition. One maybe that's maybe less formal that, um, that we practice every year. And I never thought of it as a tradition because, uh, because I, I, it, tradition sounds so formal. But every year we also have some close friends who live three or four houses away. Uh, their kids have grown up with our kids. We've known them almost since when we moved in here 15 years ago. And we have grown together over the years. And um, I I think it was about seven or eight years ago, something like that, that our friends suggested uh, that we all, both families go to a a fondue restaurant called The Melting Pot here in Denver. And this is a kind of a high-end restaurant. It's expensive, uh, i.e. expensive. Um, So we don't ever go to this place except with our friends, the Aslans. And uh, every year we have gone to the melting pot. We've gotten our reservations way in advance. And we, we try to get a private room they're called the bubble room. One wall is just a, a wall of, of like a big aquarium with bubbles bubbling up on the side. And we hang out for probably three, three and a half hours in that room and enjoy this very expensive and very long lasting um, fondue meal. And that tradition of just a deep, intimate connection with our friends has been going on for so long that, that now our kids are like, the prospect of not being able to do that this year is really shattering to them. Um, I, I, my wife and I have actually been surprised at how much this tradition really matters, especially to our kids. And so we're, we have figured out a way to get the fixins for our fondue meal from the melting pot. And we are going to socially distance, meet with our friends in their backyard. Um, They have a kind of a fire pit back there. We're going to sit at different tables apart from each other. And we are going to have our fondue together on their back deck. And hopefully we won't be too cold. And the reason we're doing this is because this tradition is very meaningful, especially to our kids that they don't want it to stop. So, during this time of year, uh, lots of families have traditions like that. Some are formal, some are informal. And when you think about those traditions, I just explained to you how 
the two traditions that we practice got started and the impact it has on your family. That's an interesting question to, to ponder. Um, it's they're way more intimate and way more powerful than maybe we give them credit for. Because during this time when we've been so stretched, we feel like, how can we, how can we follow the guidelines and yet still not lose all of our traditions? Because these traditions are in some ways what remind us of who we are and what we value and what's important to us in life. And if they're not just uh, fun memories, they're, they're ways to be together that we don't want to lose. And because they're tied to deeper meaning in us. And if you think about what role the traditions of your family play in creating the culture of your family, uh, most of our traditions are tied to something that we really honor in the family, what, what, something we really value. Our soup tradition translated, you know, with just candles on and no lights and um, what it really translates to is we value in our family being together in an unhurried way, just enjoying each other, enjoying good food, enjoying storytelling, and just simply sp slowing down to reappreciate one another. That's what's important in our family. We're not really that interested in going off to some expensive place or on, especially on Christmas Eve, going out to an expensive restaurant. We want to be at home in our own environment where we can control the lighting and be quiet together and listen to Christmas music in the background and um, just slow down and breathe together. Well, that really communicates what we value in our family. Um, even, I mean, this is going to sound funny, but the way we light the whole house the fact that we try to bathe our home in warmth means that we want we, we value being in an inviting place, a warm place, a place where you can relax and and sort of open yourself invitationally to others. That the lighting and the and the setting where you meet really does impact your ability to do all that. So the traditions of our families. Uh, play a pretty big role in creating the culture of our family and also reflecting back what that culture is. So here's a little transition. Uh, last week we had, uh, you probably had this at your church many times, we had a guest sermonizer from who was on the church staff and I, I had never heard him fill in in giving the sermon before, but I've, I've uh, listened to him before give announcements and things like that. But our pastor took a week off and he asked this person to, to do the sermon. And this, this person, as we're, I'm watching um, the streaming service, he, he spends the first five minutes telling everyone what a terrible speaker he is <laughs> and that he's just going to do his best. And I'm sitting there thinking, and then, and then he announced what he was going to preach about. And I thought, ah, I, do I want to spend the next half hour? listening to this. I'm just being honest. Do I want to spend the next half hour listening to this? And I really didn't. And I said that out loud and my wife suggested that we watch uh, an online uh, message or talk from Tim Keller or N.T. Wright instead. And at first I said, no, no, no. I, I, I probably just need to listen. You know, I, I need to be not such a, such a um, judgy consumer here. 
But then I thought, really, my time is precious. So I decided to follow her advice and I tracked down something that N.T. Wright, who's the great British theologian and a very prolific author, um, he wrote, uh, I mean, he, he uh, delivered a 90-minute lecture at Southern Methodist University's uh, theological school um, on the Jesus we never knew. And I thought, well, that, that'll be interesting. I don't want to listen to all 90 minutes of it, but maybe I'll listen to a half an hour of it, and that'll be my engagement time on this Sunday. So, so I, I uh, pulled it up and started listening. I, I actually ended up almost listening to all 90 minutes of it. I'll put a link to that 90-minute lecture on our podcast page. You just go to painridiculousattentiontojesus.com and you look for season five, episode 43, and you'll find the link to this 90-minute lecture from N.T. Wright, The Jesus We Never Knew. It interested me because the tagline to my book, The Jesus-Centered Life, is, uh, includes that phrase, the Jesus we never knew. Um, so I wanted to hear his perspective on the Jesus we think we know, but really don't. So I, I watched it. And, and the real focus of his talk was really the, what I started out the podcast with, which was, what is the focus of the mission of Jesus in light of the expectations of the culture that he was embedded in? What, what did people expect the Messiah to be? And how did Jesus both meet those expectations and upend those expectations? Really, N.T. Wright uh, is trying to make a point that Jesus came to plant this new culture in the accepted culture of that time. And this new culture is called the kingdom of God. So at one point, N.T. Wright, who goes by Tom, N.T. Wright is his sort of formal author name, and, but he likes to be called Tom, and so you'll hear him mention that in this little story. But he tells a story that highlights the mission of Jesus in the world. thought it'd be interesting for us to listen to that. So let's, let's pause and listen to N.T. Wright, the Jesus I never knew. When we get beyond our inherited and imagined stereotypes, what can we truly say about the Jesus we never knew? And in the light of that, what can we say about God? Asking those questions sends me back in my mind about 15 years ago, my wife and I were invited to lead a private pilgrimage to the Holy Land. The couple who invited us were a very interesting and remarkable couple. The wife was in a quiet way, a practicing Christian, but the husband, Sir Stanley Clark, was a leading industrialist and philanthropist who had always held back from any specific faith. And now he was, by then in his late 60s, he clearly wanted to sort things out for himself. As my wife said to me afterwards, this is how Stan's run his life. He decides what question he wants to ask. He goes and finds a tame expert. He looks them in the eye and he asks them the question. On the first evening of the trip, after a long and tiring journey, we were finally settled into our hotel in Tiberias by the Sea of Galilee. At the end of dinner, as they were serving coffee, Stan took a deep breath and looked at me. So, Tom, he said, let's get this straight. There really was a Jesus Christ. Yes, Stan, I said, there really was a Jesus Christ. And he really did die on a cross. I said, yes, he really did die on a cross. And he really did rise from the dead? Yes, I replied. And when we get to that point, I'll be explaining how we can be sure of that. And then he gave me a long, hard look. 
Stan had succeeded in business by giving people long, hard looks and then asking the crunch questions. So he said, who is God anyway? I managed to keep my nerve and restrain my academic's impulse from launching into a half-hour lecture on the Trinity. And I just said, more or less, great question. We're going to be thinking about that throughout the next two weeks. And we did. And a year or so afterwards, a year or two afterwards, something happened which fascinated me. The trip had a profound impact on Stan. Within months, he made a public profession of faith. And he then soon afterwards entered a three-year battle with cancer, which would finally kill him. But during that process, I watched Stan coming to terms with the Jesus he had encountered in the Holy Land the Jesus he had never known. To begin with, he encountered Jesus as a living person, someone to get to know, someone to follow obediently. But at the start, whenever we talked, as I naturally would, about Jesus and the kingdom of God and the implications of the kingdom of God for today's world, Stan would always want to hold back. A spiritual Jesus was fine. That was meeting his own needs where he was but a social and politically involved Jesus, nope, we're not going there. Stan was on the right of British politics, which as you may know, is probably center left in yours, but that's a whole other story. <laughs> and in Britain, the right tends not to like Christians talking about political issues in case it upsets the status quo of business and finance. You can figure that out. And so Stan didn't really want me to talk about the kingdom of, but in his last year, Without me doing anything more, he changed. And the last time we met, I was talking and praying with him and his wife when they knew they didn't have much time left together. But he had something he wanted to say to me particularly. Tom, he said, you must go on telling people about what Jesus wants in the world, about justice and peace and helping the poor. It's important people hear that. You might have thought that a man facing death would be thinking about life after death, and he was. But what he'd learnt about Jesus in the three years that he had been an explicit and open disciple was a bigger vision altogether, the vision of the Jesus who had launched God's kingdom on earth as in heaven. The Jesus we never knew. The Jesus Western culture has done its best to ignore or forget. The Jesus who still stands at the crossroads of history and beckons. So N.T. Wright, and I love the focus he brings there to the mission of Jesus in the world and how that at first uh, Stan didn't want to hear anything about that because that meant that you had to somehow change the way you interface with the rest of the world. Why can't this just be a private thing? Why can't this be my own little compartment? Why can't this be something that Jesus and I have just together and no one else really needs to know about it and nobody needs to see how it's impacting my life choices and the mission of my own life? Why can't we just keep it over here in its own little place? And I love how N.T. Wright um, it, uh, kind of unveils that, that uh, dawning meaning in Stan's life that Really, this is all about uh, this change, this radical epic change in our status and our relationship 
um, and how it infiltrates everything we are and do. It's the same thing as you don't live your life the same way once you're married that, that you did when you were single. Things change because of your status. And the kingdom of God simply means that when we're, quote unquote, married to Jesus, that things change in our everyday life. The, the, the things we say and do and the choices we make all now revolve around this relationship instead of just our own needs. And so the kingdom of God really means once we are, again, quote unquote, married, that we, we then commingle who we are with the mission of Jesus in the world. What is our role then in living out the kingdom of God? One way to explain, one other way to explain the kingdom of God that I've used uh, sometimes to help myself and others uh, understand it is let's just make believe that for Thanksgiving that you had a Japanese exchange student join you for your Thanksgiving meal. And your job was to explain to this Japanese exchange student who had never experienced Thanksgiving traditions in the United States, where these traditions came from and what they meant. Well, Jesus is in the same place. He's He's coming into a culture that has been long divorced from the kingdom of God. And he's trying to help us to understand what life is like there in that culture of the kingdom of God and what, they, what, what is valued there and what is modeled there. Um, he's trying to help us understand it. And he does that by trying to connect realities in the kingdom of God with, with the known reality we experience in our own world. So, it's interesting then that the first thing Jesus does in his quote-unquote public ministry is to lay out his own family traditions, his own family value system, his own family culture, um, the markers of that culture of the kingdom of God. He lays those things out and tells the, the gathered crowds that he's about to plant this culture on earth as it is in heaven. And he's essentially saying, I've come to bring seeds of a culture that is foreign to you. It's the culture of the kingdom of God, and I'm going to plant it here in this broken world and nurture the seeds of the kingdom of God right here so that the way that you relate and the value system that you adopt begins to mirror the same value system that already exists in heaven, in the, in the life and culture of the Trinity. So. Uh, that laying out of family traditions and values and, and practices and um, modeling all happens in Matthew 5 and 6. We call this the Sermon on the Mount, of which part of it is the Beatitudes. Now, this is one of the few places in, in all of the Gospels where Jesus does something that's, that's actually quite different than the way he typically engages people um, around their growth. When Jesus is trying to help people grow or invite them into a deeper level of relationship, he rarely just talks at them. But this is at the beginning of his ministry. And for two chapters, he sort of lays out what this culture of the kingdom of God looks and feels like. He gives people a kind of a shock and awe uh, uh, picture of what, how this kingdom is different and the culture of that kingdom is different from the one that they've experienced now, and even the one that has grown up around their religious practice. Many of the aspects of the kingdom of God come into direct conflict with the way the religious leaders and the Pharisees have constructed the, a, a religious culture on earth. 
Jesus shatters some of those expectations as well and simply says, that's not how we do it in the kingdom. And so Jesus uh, spends a great deal of time just kind of blorping out all of the kingdom culture um, on the people who have gathered to listen to him to give them a deep sense of otherness, I think, from the very beginning. And then from this beginning, he leaves that mountainside and the rest of his ministry is really trying to live out and model that kingdom of God culture. He doesn't just talk about it, he lives it. He invites his disciples to examine it up close. What are Jesus's, you know, uh, uh, gut, in, uh, gut instincts? What, why does he value this over that? Why does he uplift this thing and denigrate this thing? Uh, he gives him an up-close view of what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God by experiencing what he does on a, on a daily basis. So I thought it would be interesting for us to look at the Beatitudes. I think it's sort of the on-ramp into the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, it's sort of his uh, slam poetry um, intro to this exploration of the kingdom of God. I thought it'd be interesting for us to just look at the Beatitudes and think about um, what, what each one represents in our own life. I mean, what's an example, not only of, of how this is lived out in our life, but what's an example of how Jesus lived it out in his own life and try to make the connection between those two things. So let's take a look at each beatitude one by one and uh, come up with uh, a way that Jesus highlighted or demonstrated or lived out that aspect of the kingdom of God and then make a connection into our own life perhaps. So uh, let's take a whack at this. I'm doing this, you know, it's not in my notes. I'm just going to experience each one and then let Jesus highlight for me a connection to this in his interactions with people. So this is in Matthew 5. And if you want to flip over there in your Jesus-centered Bible and follow along, um, this is in verse 3 in, in Matthew chapter 5. And uh, Jesus is, 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 is looking at the gathered crowds around him, and he opens his mouth, and he says this. Blessed, I'm going to read all of them, by the way. I'll read all the way through this first, and then we'll go back and make some connections to how Jesus modeled each one and some connections to our everyday life. So he starts out with, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. Because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. There you have this little slam poetry preamble to the Sermon on the Mount. So let's go back. Blessed are the poor in spirit, 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, that what pops into my head is the woman, the the um, sinful woman, <laughs> as she's kind of broadly known in this in in this encounter, the sinful woman who comes uninvited to a party at a Pharisee named Simon's house where Jesus is the honored guest. She comes there because she hears that Jesus is there. And I don't know how she gets into the house. If there was somebody watching the door, they never would have let her in. So she must just come into the house because she's the kind of woman that would never be allowed into a respectable religious leader's home. But she comes in. She has an expensive vial of perfume that she's brought with her that she has paid for most likely from her uh, occupation, which the inference is that her occupation is a prostitute. So she has paid for this perfume with her sinful occupation. And yet she brings in this very expensive perfume because Jesus is there and she finds him and kneels before him and opens that vial of perfume and pours it on his feet, washes his feet with this perfume, dries his feet with her hair, and she's weeping all the time, weeping and weeping before him. Meanwhile, Simon and all of his friends are just absolutely aghast. They, they can't believe this woman has had the, the audacity to come to their home and even more to approach their honored guest. And why isn't this honored guest, this Rabbi Jesus who presents himself as something, why, why if, if all he is is even a, just a prophet, why wouldn't he know who this woman is? Of course he would know. Everyone knows. You can tell just from the context who this woman is. So Simon inside is just steaming. Why has he allowed this woman to continue to do this? This is wrong what he's doing. And Jesus senses what he's thinking and calls him out. And the way that he calls him out is to tell a little parable about two people who are in debt to someone. And he asks Simon, one has a little debt and one has an enormous debt and they're both debts are forgiven. And he asks Simon, which do you think is more grateful? And Simon says, well, the one who had the greater debt. And then I imagine there being like a pregnant pause. And there is this weeping, kissing woman, wiping his feet with her hair, kissing his feet over and over again, weeping some more, anointing his feet with perfume. And, si and Jesus says to Simon, you know, when I walked in here, you did not wash my feet. You didn't honor me in the way you, you would typically honor an honored guest. You didn't do it. I don't know if that was on purpose. Maybe it is. Maybe you're skeptical. Maybe you withheld your generosity and your hospitality from me on purpose, but this woman has withheld nothing. She is poor in spirit, meaning she recognizes her dependence, her utter need for Jesus. She's not strutting into this meeting thinking, I've got it pretty good. I'm pretty respectable around here. I'm pretty well known for how I um, keep up my religious practice. Uh, people respect me. She's not coming in that way. In fact, she's the only person in the room who hasn't come in that way. You've been in lots of gatherings with religious people who, where the, the uh, settled understanding is um, 
that we respect each other because of our impressions of how we live our lives and what we believe and what our what our uh, past record of of accomplishment and success is and the esteem that others give us that's our currency in the kingdom of god that isn't the currency it's the poor in spirit who inherit the kingdom of heaven meaning she is already living out the culture of the kingdom of heaven by doing what she's doing where she is essentially saying i'm not standing on my own reputation and my own gifts and my own accomplishments i am instead inviting relationship with you jesus i'm crying over your feet in gratefulness because um, there's something i find so beautiful in you i just want to give to you in the only way i know how which is to anoint your feet to 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 serve you in the most intimate way out of a overflowing heart of gratefulness somehow some way this woman had heard jesus experienced him heard him talk or or model the kingdom of god and it must have seemed like um, a treasure from heaven to her a, a, an upending grace to her and she just needed to respond to it somehow out of gratefulness and because she modeled poor in spirit jesus says you're already living in the kingdom and the attachment to this for me is that as we approach Jesus and approach life dependently with our hands open, always inviting him to guide us, to, to um, partner with us, to speak into our lives, to, to correct us if we need it, but our hands are always open. We're always moving toward experiencing his beauty and his wonder and his, and and the way that his love for us has changed everything in our lives. We're always living in that posture of dependence, but we're not thinking we've got it all dialed in. We're not thinking that we're all that in a bag of chips, as they say. We're not thinking that our religious practice is what brings us righteousness. We know all of it's dependent on him. That way of living, I just picture this I, uh, for myself, going through my day with my hands open and raised like a little kid would. I am always inviting and always recognizing I am weak, but he is strong and his strength becomes my strength then. Um, verse four in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. I just think about the time when um, uh, Lazarus has died and has been in the tomb for four days because Jesus didn't come when his friends, Mary and Martha asked him to come. And Lazarus is there in the tomb, four days dead, dead as certainly as you can be dead. And Jesus finally arrives. His purpose is to show to the world that he has authority even over death. And he's chosen his close friend, Lazarus, as the object lesson for this. And he sees that the terrible impact of grief that all around him, because Lazarus meant so much to so many. And he himself is broken with grief in watching what this is, how this has impacted those around Lazarus. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And so Jesus, the comfort that Jesus brings first to Mary and Martha is his own presence. Into their mourning, he brings his presence. He's no longer away. He's with them. 
and his presence is comfort in and of itself. And then, of course, he intends to raise Lazarus from the dead. But the, the mourning is actually an invitation to, for a more intimate experience of Jesus' presence. Our mourning, again, is a way of, again, opening our hands and saying, I'm in grief. I need you. And because of that invitation, Jesus comes into a deeper place. The deeper the grief, actually, the deeper the invitation that he has to come. And that's why in our experience of mourning in our lives, we have sometimes felt this kind of intimacy and sense of his presence that we never fear, never feel anywhere else in our life. So my encouragement to you, even during this holiday time, is to give yourself permission to mourn, uh, to acknowledge the grief in your life from this year of grief, to, to um, give it the respect it deserves. The way that I mourn is I sometimes retreat to our unfinished basement and I lie down there on the couch and I just let myself cry. I let the grief or lament that I've experienced in my life just bubble over and I let myself cry until I don't need to anymore. And I feel the intimacy and comfort of Jesus when I do that. Perhaps it's an invitation for you too, to find your own private place where you can feel safe to just cry, to let it out, whatever it is, as an invitation to Jesus. Verse five says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Now, how are the humble, why would the humble inherit the earth? Inherit the earth means that their inheritance is incredibly valuable. It's incredibly um, pricey. (laughs) If you're going to receive an inheritance and it's the whole earth, well, you can't get a bigger inheritance than that. So how does this connect? Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. I think about um, the disciples, all of them eventually sort of living out this, this beatitude. They live out humility, not only just by committing their lives to Jesus and leaving behind everything they'd ever known, but they, they are so uh, committed in relationship to him that all of them in the end become martyrs. And John dies of old age on the island of Patmos. But the meek, those that are humble, those that have decided it's, that life is not about me. It's about, it's about Jesus. My, my life is ultimately about Jesus. I'm bowing before his mission instead of my mission. His mission matters more to me. Well, what does it mean then that you inherit the whole earth? Something so, well, all I can tell you is that if you've ever been involved with uh, uh, someone who is in need or is in need of transformation or in, simply in need of Jesus and played a role, somehow a midwife for their experience of intimacy and their relationship with Jesus and seen the transformation that has come about because of them, how can there be anything more valuable that we experience as human beings than watching that happen. And that comes from the humility to make the mission of Jesus higher than my own mission in life, whatever that is, to be available to people, to be their, their midwives, <laughs> to, to humble ourselves, to serve. Oh, how can you have a greater inheritance than that? Our true inheritance at the end of this, in, at the end of our life is in the lives that we've impacted. Um, and that's, that's the weight of the wealth of the inheritance of the earth. Uh, verse six, blessed are those who hunger and thirst 
for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. I think about Nicodemus coming to Jesus in the night, so much wanting to um, experience his grace, experience um, the, the unusualness of who he is. He's fascinated by what Jesus says and does. And he wants to know more. And so even though it's, it's politically incorrect, and even though he could get in trouble for this, he comes to Jesus at night because he is hungry and thirsty. And he opens himself in a vulnerable way, like a child, even though he's a very learned man, and asks Jesus to explain himself, um, to explain uh, what it means to be born over again. Um, and, and, and he doesn't understand. He, 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 he uh, approaches Jesus in humility because his hunger and thirst is so great. And later on, of course, Nicodemus stands up for Jesus in, in the gathering of Pharisees and stands up for him because he's experienced a, uh, his hunger and thirst being satiated in Jesus' presence. He is filled, and therefore he risks in a bold way on behalf of Jesus. So what does it mean to hunger and thirst for righteousness in our own lives? I, I think in the end, um, hungering and thirsting is sort of an autonomic reaction in our body when, we're, when we have been without food, right? And uh, for us to taste and see the goodness of Jesus in sort of an everyday way, so much so that our hunger and thirst is accessed, accessed. When, we don't have an, when we don't have him, we hunger for him. That is basically the reason why I spent two years writing the Jesus Center Daily, by the way. It was um, uh, a little serving of Jesus every day for those who hunger and thirst for him. And the, the interesting thing about that is that when you eat, quote unquote, of Jesus more and more or drink of Jesus more and more, your hunger and thirst becomes even deeper. It becomes an autonomic reaction. So spend time... Um, pursuing and slowing down to taste the beauty of Jesus every day. Use the Jesus Center daily or something else if you would like to, but something to spark that hunger and thirst because he will fill it. We have a few left here, but we're running out of time. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. That's fascinating if you think about um, so often Jesus offering mercy to people that the, um, their surrounding culture said sh you shouldn't show mercy to them. I think about Zacchaeus who sees Jesus by climbing up in a tree and he can't wait to see him. And Jesus notices him and calls him out and says, I'm going to go to your house today and enjoy a meal, which is a act of, of great honor that Jesus invites himself to Zacchaeus's house when the whole town thinks he's a betrayer and, a, and a, a, someone you should never connect relationally around. And Zacchaeus just bubbles over in mercy for those that he has wronged. He asks forgiveness and he says, I'm not only just asking for forgiveness, and, but I'm, I'm going to pay back everyone I have wrongly taken money from and I'll, I'll pay back more than I owe. I'll, I will bless those people that, uh, that I have wronged. I will be merciful because of what I've done. And in turn, Jesus shows him mercy. He sees that gracious heart of gratitude and offers Zacchaeus mercy as well.
Um, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. The purity of heart, for they will see God. I, I think the purity of heart is a lifelong process of the, uh, of infection, of the heart of Jesus infecting us, because the heart of Jesus is pure. And the longer we are near and attached to that heart, the more it infects our own. And, and that has the result that we begin to see God as he really is. We begin to see him um, for the profound way that he's beautiful. I think this is what happened to Peter, by the way, when he, when Peter says to Jesus in response to Jesus asking his disciples, are you going to leave too, like all of the crowds have done? Now that I've asked them to eat my body and drink my blood and they're all gone, are you going to leave too? And Peter says, where else would we go? Only you have words of life and truth, Jesus. There is something that Peter is expressing in this moment that is pure. He has begun to see the heart of Jesus because he has been around Jesus so much that he can't imagine himself apart from him anymore. Jesus, the purity of Jesus's heart, the beauty of it has begun to infect Peter's heart. And so he responds by saying, I, I can't go anywhere else. I'm with you. Blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called children of God. Blessed are the peacemakers. They'll be called children of God. Children of God means that the children act like their father. You can tell from the behavior of the children who their father is and the peacemakers look a lot like God. They're people who are willing to live amongst their enemies and bring peace. Just as Jesus said, the real marker for love is, do you love your enemies? The peacemakers live amongst their foes. That's another way of saying that. That's what Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said about the life of a, of a believer. It's a, the life of a believer is to live amongst your foes, bringing peace in the midst of it. And what a tall order that is. But when we do that, we look a lot like God. We bring peace into every circumstance. I have a friend of mine who named Fred Odoyoye, um, who works now with Vibrant Faith, the organization that I'm executive director for, who was talking about this very reality the other day. And he, he said that when you're a peacemaker like he is, he, he runs an organization called Re, uh, Reachable Reconciliation. It's all about reconciling uh, the, um, and, and, and a sense of diversity within the church. Um, and Fred, uh, Fred talked about how to be a peacemaker, you have to empty yourself. You have to serve the people around you instead of serving yourself. And in that way, you're reflective of the attitude and modeling of Jesus as well. Finally, let's do this last one. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. No, the persecution means that you have decided to be countercultural. You have decided to run counter to the current cultural stream. And because of that, the system punishes you because all systems punish those that don't abide by the rules of the system. So righteousness is not the rules of the system in this broken world. And so we're certain to be persecuted for that. And we're blessed when we are because we don't have to inherit the kingdom of the broken world, we get to inherit the kingdom of God. We get to inherit um, life, the beautiful freedom-giving life of the kingdom of God. We don't have to depend upon the little scraps uh, that we collect from the, the broken kingdom of earth, the, the little things that we, that we use to get by on. We don't have to depend on those things. 
we can experience the life-giving kingdom of God fruits, the treasure of it all. So there's a little walk through the Beatitudes and that last one about uh, persecution because of righteousness. I think in some ways it simply means um, when it push comes to shove, do we, in, do we live our lives according to the values and customs of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of the world? And are we willing to stick out and even be punished for that sometimes because we can't live any other way? Yes, that's, that's the case. So let's close up this, this uh, episode 43 of season five with just a remembrance from Jesus about the kingdom culture difference that Jesus brings to prayer. This is from Matthew six. Listen to this as a closing. When you pray, do not be like the hypocrites for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who has seen what is done in secret will reward you. So take this to heart in your own life. The next time you're tempted to pray poetically, <laughs> how about if you just go away to pray in secret instead? Have your own private time with Jesus and tell him what you really think. Go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who's unseen. Uh, let it all out. Don't make it a performance. Make it a, make it a time of intimacy. That's uh, a good reminder for me as well as we head into this busy water slide of a season. All right, gang. Thanks for, again for listening. Again, this is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. It's a podcast produced by well, by ricklawrence.com. <laughs> um, you can uh, check out all the links for things we talked about today by going to paintridiculousattentiontojesus.com. Just go to season five, episode 43, and, and uh, you'll find the links to these things. Um, we are in this series, The Kingdom Comes, so we'll keep, uh, keep, doing, keep moving through this series and see where it ends. So you can expect episode two of this series next week. I'm so grateful that you listen. I'm so grateful you show up. If you want to make sure that you never miss one of these, you can just uh, uh, subscribe to this podcast on, on iTunes or Google Play or wherever you get your podcasts. And we will see you again next time.